The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Before I preach, I would just like to bring my son up. Ace, I want you to come here for a minute. This is, what's your name? This is Asaph, and how old are you? Six. He's six. And Asaph, I wanted you to meet him for those who didn't know him. He's my oldest son. I have two other children and one coming in November, Lord willing. And uh, Ace is going to go to his class now, but I wanted to make sure everybody here saw him and knows him. Do you want to wave to everybody and say hello? Hello. All right. Now I want you to go to your class and learn really well and teach me what you learned uh, later today, okay? Good job, buddy. He's great. I love him. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. We have now reached the final text that we are going to consider from Genesis this year. Next summer, we will return to Genesis, Lord willing, and we'll cover, cover the adult life of Isaac and the adult life of Jacob. But this summer has been a wonderful summer in learning about the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 through 22. I hope that you've been as blessed and encouraged as I have been to study about him. And I just want to give you a heads up that because today is a culmination of everything that we've studied so far, the sermon might be just a little bit longer than usual, but it's important because this is literally the final event, the most significant event that we see in the life of Abraham. We've reached the final text about his faith, and this is the pinnacle of the story and the most significant moment in Abraham's narrative. The story that we are about to read is also one of the most heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching texts in the entire Bible. The sermon today, therefore, will have intentionally no humor. There are texts, perhaps especially the Proverbs, that lend themselves well to joviality and laughter and irony, but although Isaac's name means laughter, I think you're going to see that from this text, the content of this historical event is no laughing matter. To speak trivially trivially about this matter would do you a great disservice. So even illustrations this morning will be few. Cross-references and external sources are going to be intentionally limited because I desire for you to be absolutely immersed in the event that takes place in the first 19 verses of this chapter. So please join me in approaching the word of God with solemnity and honor. Follow along as I begin reading in verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his own son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? 
Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. And when they came to the place of God, which he had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order to in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Please incline your ears, but also your heart to the Lord now, as I pray that God would help me in the delivery, but also help you in the reception of this word this morning. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, this is a hard word. This is a challenging word. Lord, this is a heart-wrenching word, but it is a good word for us. Father, I pray that today you would help us to understand why these events have taken place so that we might better know you and better live for you. God, I pray for anyone in this room that has not been saved, anyone who does not know Jesus in a saving way, Lord, that you would use this text to open their eyes to the gospel and their understanding to the truth, that you might lead them to salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I assume that most of you in the room are pretty familiar with the words that I just read. But it's really easy for us to come to a passage like this one that we know well and to simply pass by it with any kind of, without any deep contemplation. But I want you to the best of your ability, consider these words as though it was your first time reading them. Imagine that you have never read the Bible before and you just picked it up for the first time this summer. You started reading Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and you begin walking through it verse by verse by verse. And as you did this, what you would have seen is that God is serious about sin. He casts Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their sin. And you see it even in a greater way later in the judgment of God when he destroyed the earth in the days of Noah. But you would have also seen that God is a God of mercy, that he did not destroy everyone. He did not destroy Adam and Eve. He did not destroy Noah. And he does not destroy the people of Babel. You would have seen the long-suffering, covenant-keeping God. He promised that he would never again flood the earth and destroy it. Therefore, when all of the people begin to turn against him at Babel, what does he do? He doesn't destroy it. Instead, he just changes their languages to divide them. Why? Because he kept his promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. Then Abram comes onto the scene and you see this covenant-keeping, long-suffering, merciful God make massive, outrageous promises to this man, Abram. He says that he will make him into a great nation, that he in his old age will give him a son. 
And God proves himself over and over and over to be faithful. Even when, as we have seen all summer long, Abraham proves himself to be faithless. And now we arrive at Genesis 22. And God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son that you love and kill him. If you read this and you have no reaction, it is likely that you have become sinfully disengaged and desensitized to your Bible. That we can come to a text like this and not be in shock and awe at God's command. I think most of us in this room just read it too quickly. If you didn't know the end of the story, you would rightfully be deeply disturbed at what God commands Abraham to do here. It throws into question everything that we've learned about his attributes and his character. This command, if not properly understood, makes God out to be an uncaring despot who is ruled by his emotions and fueled by doubt about his subject's loyalty to him. I did this so that I would know if you love me, Abraham. That's why it's absolutely vital for us this morning to ask the question, why did God command Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Why did he do this? And by answering this question from God's word, I believe that he will draw out for us from this text exactly what God desires for us to know about him and about how we are called to serve him. So from the time that we, uh, from my time in the word this week, I just wanted to let you know I've collected three reasons given uh, that I will collect into kind of three major subheadings of why God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And I hope as we answer these questions this morning, you are greatly blessed. First, God was testing Abraham and testing his faith. Second, God was teaching us about worship. And third, God was pointing us to the gospel. First, God was testing Abraham's faith. In verse number one, it tells us that God tested Abraham. And in verse two, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, most of us in this room are very far removed from any kind of animal sacrifice. And I'm thankful for that. Most of us are actually even far removed from animals, period. So far, people in our people in our society, we have no connection with animals. And so it's difficult for us to even imagine what it's like for someone to have a lamb that is their animal and they take it out, they lay it onto an altar and they slit its throat until it bleeds out. And then they light it on fire until it is completely consumed. It is difficult for us to even imagine this kind of event taking place. And beyond that, it's much more unimaginable for us to consider doing such a thing to a human being. But in Abraham's day, Human sacrifice was a relatively common occurrence. We know both from scripture and from archaeological evidence that the people of Canaan worshipped false gods that supposedly required their subjects to offer their own children, often their firstborn, as a sacrifice or burnt offering to idols. And we know from archaeology that even though this occurred in Canaan, it was not super common, but it did occur far more often in the land of Ur. If you remember, that is where Abraham came from. Now, we don't know this from the scripture, and it's impossible to know, but it's very likely that Abraham had relatives that had been sacrificed on an altar. We don't know this, and it's impossible to know, but it's likely that he understands and is familiar because when he was younger, before he was called by God, perhaps he has even seen one of these human sacrifices. And verse 1, it tells us God is testing Abraham, but it is clear Abraham does not know this is a test. All Abraham knows is that God says, go sacrifice your son to me. This is shocking. He simply hears God's command and Abraham obeys. 
At this point, I believe it's very important that I pause and I make a very clear statement. God has not ever, nor will he ever command you to kill your children. He has not ever or ever will command you to kill anyone for that matter. In fact, the scripture is clear on the following truths. One, God never wanted Abraham to kill Isaac. Two, God always knew that Abraham would obey him in his attempt to kill Isaac. And three, God always knew that he would stop Abraham before sacrificing his son. Now allow me how I, to show you how I know this is true from the word. This is where, by the way, knowing the attributes of God is so helpful. I want to encourage you, if you have not been coming on Wednesdays to our series about the attributes of God, this is why it's so important. Four of the five reasons I'm about to give you are reasons that I will argue from the attributes of God. What we know from scripture about who God is and what he is like. So that's merely a preview of what you're going to hear if you begin coming on Wednesday nights. So how do I know that God never wanted Abraham to kill Isaac? And how do I know that God always knew that Abraham would obey? And how do I know that God always knew that he would stop Abraham before he sacrificed his son? Reason number one, because God is immutable. If you were here this past Wednesday, you would have heard a long form sermon about what it means that God is immutable. It means that he does not change. Or as it says in Revelation, chapter, uh, Revelation it says we, he is without shadow of turning. There's no difference. He doesn't shift or make any move or as hebrews 13 teaches us he is the same yesterday today and forever he is immutable he is unchanging and god condemns human sacrifice many times in the bible for example in deuteronomy 12 31 it reads you shall not worship the lord your god in that way speaking of the way of the canaanites for every abominable thing that the lord hates they have done it for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Later, when God gives these commands to Moses, he is telling him, this is why I don't want you to worship like them. Everything they do in worship is abominable to me. And the pinnacle of their evil is that they would kill their own children to worship their gods. God hates human sacrifice. It is an abomination to him. And because God is immutable and does not change, God is not okay with it in Abram's day and then not okay with it later. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's the second reason I know these three things. Because God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. Verse 13 says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or, have, or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Some people will read this and they will approach it as though God has now learned something that he did not previously know. But God knows all things at all times. He knows everything. He cannot learn. There are many people who take these words and falsely assume that God was unclear about Abraham's faith before this event took place. They think that this test was an extreme measure in order for God to determine what's really going on in the heart of Abraham. But does God not know? Let me ask you, does God not know the heart of man? Does he not know your heart? Did the Lord not say to Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Or Psalm 44, 21 says, would God not discover this? Speaking about anything that you do. For he knows the secrets of your heart. Or John chapter two, verse 24, 25. Speaking of Jesus, it says about him, on his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. Do we not see this all the time in the life of Jesus? He'll be talking to someone and then he'll just tell them what they're thinking or tell them what's going on in their heart or tell them what they are about to do. 
Consider what he says in Luke chapter 5, 22. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? How does he know the Pharisees' hearts? Because he knows all things. Not only what they feel, but also how their faith is going to affect what they do. For he says to Peter, when Peter says, I'm not going to betray you, Lord. I would never betray you. He says, Peter, tomorrow, by tomorrow morning, when the rooster crows three times, you will have already denied me three times. How does he know this? Does he not know the heart of man and how that will affect their choices? He knows because he is omniscient. The third thing that we can consider here is that God is omnipresent, which is to say that he is everywhere. Now, I want you to think carefully here. Consider that there are two commands in Genesis chapter 22. The first command, he says, Abraham, go take your son, your only son, the one that you love, take Isaac and kill him on the altar. And then he says, stop. Don't touch the boy. Don't harm him. Now, I want you to consider that God is omnipresent. Consider the fact that this does not just mean that he is in all places at all time. For example, right now, he is just as much here as he is on Venus or, you know, some far reaching part of the galaxy or as much as he is in other churches. He is in all places at all times. But not only is he in all places at all times, he is also in all times at all times. His omnipresence does not just mean that he is located in one place in in time. He is not limited to time like we are. He is outside and beyond time. He himself created time. I like the way Matt Chandler puts it. He says the future is not a place that God knows about. It's where God is. God is simultaneously in the future and in the past and in the present for us. God operates outside of time. That is part of his omnipresence. So for Abraham, several days have passed between these two commands. But functionally speaking, for God, these two commands happen simultaneously. Kill your child. Don't lay your hand on the boy. These two commands for God are simultaneously occurring because he is outside of time. He is omnipresent. Fourth, God is faithful. Now we particularly see this, especially in Genesis, in terms of the covenant. Let me ask you, when did God promise to make Abraham into a great nation? Was it not way back in chapter 12 when he first called him out of the land of his father? And when did God promise to give him a son? Was it not in chapter 15? And again, in chapter 17, when he covenanted with him, But in chapter 22, it says, by myself, I have sworn, this is verse 16, because you have done this, because you have done this, because Abraham, you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, because you have done this, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. When did he make this promise? He made this promise years ago. 40 years earlier, he already said to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants like the stars of the heaven. 35 years earlier, he said, I will make them like the sand on the seashore. He's already told him this. But now he says, because you have done this, I will do it. So was God lying earlier? Was he doing it conditionally, waiting to see what Abraham would do? Or does God always keep his promises? Is he faithful to his covenant? And the answer is yes, God is faithful to his covenant. And yes, he did it because Abraham obeyed. God knew that Abraham's faith would uphold. And his covenant with Abraham by making Isaac into a great nation was never in jeopardy. He was never risking anything by telling Abraham to do this. Therefore, it is clear that God never doubted Abraham would obey him. He knew that Abraham would display his faith through obedience. But you may wonder, 
how could God be sure that Abraham would do this? I mean, of course, from uh, aside from all the attributes we've already considered, we consider now our fifth and final attribute. There are many others we could consider this morning, but I want you to see that faith is a gift and that God is the giver. In short, Abraham was able to do what he did only because God was giving him the strength and providing him the faith to do it. As Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. How is it done? It is done through faith. And what is faith? It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no man can boast. In other words, Abraham cannot boast and say, look how faithful I am. He cannot do that because by the very nature of saying it's done by faith, it is the opposite of saying it is done by works. He is saying, I am doing it because God has given me the strength to do this. So how is it that Abraham had the faith to take his son and lift him up and lay him onto that altar? How could he do that? He could do that simply because God gave him the faith to do it. So if God never actually expected Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, why did he test Abraham? Abraham doesn't know what's going on. He thinks God really wants him to do this. Why does he test Abraham in this way? Consider what this must have been like for Abraham. This was not easy. We're not told what he's thinking in Genesis 22, but imagine it. Earlier, I introduced you to my son. I can't imagine it. As a dad, I read this and I am heartbroken for Abraham. I can't imagine what he is thinking when he saddles up his donkey. I can't imagine these last conversations he's having with his wife, Sarah, who was finally able to give him this little boy. Did he even tell her? I doubt it. I can't imagine as they are traveling and they are with these two servants or or, or assistants and they are traveling along and they are waiting those three days on that long journey. Every time that he pulled out his knife for some reason or another, looking at it and thinking, this is going to be plunged into my son. I cannot imagine what is going on in his mind every time that he took the fire and started the fire for their evening circle as they were laying down to bed. I can't imagine what he was thinking when he was considering my son is going to be burned by a fire just like this one. Or when he was cutting the wood that it says that he cut himself that he would later lay on his own son. I cannot imagine the sorrow of seeing his son carry that wood up the hill. I can't imagine it. And we ultimately don't know what's going on in his mind, but the New Testament does give us a glimpse into his mind. In Hebrews 11, chapter chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, that Steve read for us earlier, here's what it says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall all your offspring be named. He considered, Listen carefully. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. These verses show us that Abraham was weighing these two conflicting things in his mind. He was saying, God promised that he would make me into a great nation. God promised that he would do this. And God promised me that it is coming through this son, the son of promise, the son called laughter, this son Isaac. This is the one who is going to fulfill the promise. He made a promise and God is faithful. God is good. God does not lie. God keeps his covenant. God's word is true. I know that I can trust him. He's saying this in his mind. We know this is going on. And then as this is, is rolling around in his mind. He also says, but God tells me to kill him. So Abraham knows that God's going to keep the promise, but he knows that it also is going to occur after the death of his own son. You can see this clearly in Genesis chapter 22, verse five, that he believes, Abraham believes that God is going to raise his son from the dead. That's what it teaches us here. That even, even if it God takes God raising this boy up from the dead, he is going to 
uh, come back down the hill. Abraham says this very thing in Genesis 22, 5 to his attendants. He says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and come back to you again. Who is going to come back? We are coming back. Isaac is coming down that hill with me. He is going to come back. He believes that God is going to keep his promise, even if it requires raising him from the dead. Just pause for a moment and consider the faith that this man has. At this point in history, no one, never, ever, ever has anyone been raised from the dead. There is no indication that we are ever given in the scripture before this point that anyone would ever be raised from the dead. And he says, if God's going to do it, if he's going to make me kill this boy, he's going to bring him back to life because he's going to fulfill his promise. He believes so firmly in God's command and in God's covenant that he knows resurrection is going to be necessary to complete this action. But Abraham is trusting so thoroughly in God that he is willing to go through with it. Even though we can consider, we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what's going on in his mind, what's going on in his heart. It's got to be awful, but he knows his God. Therefore, he obeys. So why did God test Abraham in this way? Because faith is like a muscle. And it is something that we have to have exercised and stretched and flexed in order to grow stronger. If you don't, it will just become weak. This event takes place because God is not willing to allow Abraham to remain weak in his faith. We have seen this summer that over his constant failures and successes, he is growing gradually and gradually more strong in his faith. And now at this time, we see that he succeeds in his faith. God is strengthening him in his faith. God tests Abraham because it is producing in Abraham endurance. As it says in James 1, 2, and 3, it tells us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If you follow the logic here, that your testing of your faith is the only way that God is going to result in perfecting your faith so that you can be said of God, by God, that you are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It requires the testing of your faith. God is sanctifying Abraham. He's building him up, edifying him to be perfect and complete. God does not test us in order to discover our faith. Hear me. God does not test Abraham to discover his faith. Rather, he tests us and he tested Abraham to develop our faith. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 7 teaches us, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, We look out of the world, we encounter trials, things are hard, difficulties, hardships, they're there. We can't deny them. We experience trials of many kinds, but he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, these are tests not only from the world, but God is controlling them. These are tests for us. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why is it that our faith is being tested? Ultimately, it's so that our lives would be glorifying and giving praise and honor to Jesus Christ. God tested Abraham with what I believe to be the second most challenging test that has ever been given to a man. God was doing this though for Abraham's good. Likewise, God tests us so that our faith might grow and so that the tested genuineness of our faith might result in praise and glory of God. So what trial is it that you're experiencing? What test from God are you encountering? Is God currently testing you? It's very likely that he is, and you don't know that it's a test from God. Abraham didn't realize this was a test from the Lord until it was over. 
But please understand that all of your circumstances, every one of them, is providentially laid out by God for your good and his glory if you are in Christ. It is no accident when your car does not start in the morning or when your boss yells at you or your parents get divorced or your doctor gives you that bad news. God has ordered every step that you will ever take. And some of them might be hard to walk in, but God works through them to grow your faith. Trust me, none of your tests that you ever encounter will be more difficult than what Abraham encountered in Genesis chapter 22. None of them will be this challenging. But God wants to use all of your circumstances, the good ones that you see as good and the ones that you see as bad. He wants to use all of them to conform you into the image of his son. So before you complain or before you entertain self-pity, know that God is working in all of this and he will, he will do it. He will work for his good purpose. So let's move now to point number two. Why did Abraham sacrifice Isaac? Why did God tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Point number two, God was teaching us about worship. This will be a short point, but I I believe it's a very significant and important point. I was actually not planning to preach about this. It wasn't in my, my outline originally. But I think this is one of the most important things that we will say uh, about this text. And it's something that came up in a conversation I was having with Gene earlier this week. I was talking to him about this passage and he had told me that he has preached on this before. So I asked him, what do I need to know about this passage? And he said that when he preached on it, he focused on it from the perspective of worship. And I would like to pass this along to you. So thank you very much, Gene, for your encouragement. I want you to see that Abraham is a man of worship. As you've read and as we preach through Genesis chapter 12 through 21, everywhere that Abraham goes, what does he do? He sets up an altar and he worships the Lord every time, except two. And those two are the times when he is in disobedience to God. For example, when he goes into Egypt, he does not set up an altar. He does not worship God. Why? Because he is in sin and he is lying. Sarah, that's my sister, not my wife. He's lying. The only other time is when he goes and sees Abimelech and he lies again. Oh, that's Sarah. That's, that's my sister. He doesn't set up an altar because he is in sin and in a failure of faith. But he is a man of worship. Everywhere else he goes, he sets up an altar and he worships the Lord. You also see that he is used to worshiping the Lord through sacrifice because Isaac knows what sacrifice is all about. He gets it. Abraham is, is going along with Isaac and Isaac says to him, behold, fire and wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knows there needs to be a lamb. He knows. Why does he know? Why does a kid know anything? Why does Asaph do the things that he does? Because repetition and observation. He sees them. He knows what I do. He sees what his mother does. And so he learns from them. How does Isaac know there needs to be a lamb? Because he's used to it. Because Abraham is a man of worship. Look again with me at verse five. It says, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Abraham considers this, the taking of his own son and laying him on this altar and killing him as an act of worship. So it raises the question for us, what is worship? And just to give a very brief answer, worship is not merely the time that we had of singing. It's not raising your hands. It's not just even memorizing the word or reading the word of God. Worship is everything that you do that is rooted in a heart of love and humble obedience to the savior. Consider how the heart of Abraham has changed over the years. Think about this. Every time God has ever said that he is going to do something, Abraham kind of has this little bit of pushback. Well, what, what about this? What about that? I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the land surrounding it. Well, what if there are 50 righteous? What if there are 40? What if there are 30? And Abraham kind of 
has this discussion with God. Well, God already said he's going to do it and God actually does it. But Abraham has this response in him. Well, what about this? God says, I'm going to give you an heir. And he says, well, what about Eleazar? Who's not from my family, but, but what about him being there? Or, or God says, I'm going to give you a son. And he says, I already have Ishmael. Why don't you make Ishmael the son who will walk before you? He points over and over to this son. Ishmael says, why not him, God? Why not him? But now, God gives him the harshest of all the commands he will ever give him. And you know what he says? Here I am. God says, Abraham, Abraham, verse one, Abraham. And he said, here I am. This phrase is important. Here I am is not just like a statement of location. It's not just saying, oh, look over here. Here I am is a a phrase that is a very specific phrase that is used in the Old Testament. It is a phrase that a servant would say when reporting for duty. It's like our expression that says, I'm at your service. It's the same phrase that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 6 when he says to the Lord, here I am, send me, send me. That is the same phrase. It's saying, God, I'm right here. I'll do whatever you want me to do. It's a heart of obedience and humble submission before God. And this is before God even tells him what to do. And then consider, last time God spoke to Abraham, he told him, send away Ishmael, the son that you love, send him away so that Isaac is your only son. We heard about this last week. It was heartbreaking to Abraham. He did not desire in himself to do this. And that's the last time that he spoke to God, roughly a decade earlier. And God comes back to him and he says, here I am. What do you want me to do? I'll do it. Then God says the unthinkable, take your son, your only son, the one that you love and sacrifice him. And Abraham obeys. The next thing that we see is he gets up early in the morning. He doesn't delay. He immediately and with all deliberate speed obeys. Now, I'm not going to take long on this today, but I want to, to say about this that you were made to worship. You are a worshiper. Every person in this room is a worshiper and your heart is constantly searching for things to worship. Or as Martin Luther said, your heart is an idol-making factory. Why is it an idol-making factory? Because you want to worship something. You were designed and created to give your adoration to something. But we tend to give all of our adoration and our love and our worship to lesser things, to false gods, to what the Bible calls idols. So I want to ask you that if, if, if God had a clipboard and he came to you and he had a list on that clipboard of everything that you own, everything in your home, everything that you want, every one of your passions, your desires, everything that's yours. And he began to check one off after another and say, I want this, give it up. And I want this, give it to me. And I want this, hand it over. How far down that list would he get before you say, no, that is mine. Back off. What gives you the right? This doesn't belong to you. This is mine. We need to learn that nothing belongs to us. Everything belongs to God. Everything that you have, you have been graciously given. Those things that you would be unwilling to give up to God, those things where you would grab onto it and hold on and try to hide it and try to keep it, those things in your life, those are idols that you have placed above God. Abraham could have easily idolized his son. He could have taken Isaac and said, I want him more than anything. This little boy is the one that he loved. I love him. He waited so long to have Isaac. God promised him and he waited 25 years for that fulfillment until he was an old man and he doubted it even in himself that he could do this. Yet the Lord gave him Isaac and now instead he says, give him up. And Abraham sees this as worship to the Lord. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to worship by giving God exactly what he wants. So let me ask you, what is your worship like? Not here. It's easy to worship the Lord here when you're among friends and you're in a safe place. What is your worship like when you're at your your work? 
Do you do all things without grumbling and complaining as unto the Lord, Philippians 2.14? Does your life look like Colossians 3.23 and, 20, and, and 24, which says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward? Are you serving the Lord, as it says here, by serving, doing everything that you do as if it was for Christ? Is your job a place of worship for you? Is your home a place of worship for you? Those places that you've carved out and said, this is my time. This is entertainment time. This is my moment. This is relaxation. Are those times of worship for you? Godly spiritual rest. Or are these times that you have carved out as an idol? It's easy to worship God with our words here. It's much harder when the rubber hits the road and we encounter persecution and when the world and the flesh and the devil are scheming to destroy you. But I want to call you. I want to encourage you to worship. See Abraham's example and worship by sacrificially obeying God in all things. This isn't in my notes, but just one, one quick aside. Later on this same mountain, Mount Moriah, where Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, there's another king. His name is David. And David is... He has disobeyed God and God commands of him a sacrifice. This is towards the end of his life. And he goes to this mountain where he is going to make a sacrifice. And God, he he knows he needs to sacrifice these animals to God. And this person is there who has a barn with animals in it. And he says, I need these animals for a sacrifice. And he begins to pay for them. And the person says, no, you're the king and these are for the Lord. Just take them. And David almost gets mad. He says, I will not make a sacrifice to my Lord that costs me nothing. And so he pays this person for his property and for his animals so that he might pay for them because he is not going to give God a sacrifice that costs him nothing. True worship is costly to us. It means giving up our desires, giving up our passions, giving up the things that we so tightly cling to and saying, it's yours, Lord. Use me however you want. So now we come to point number three. Why did God command Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? And I think this is the most clear and significant and central point that we will make this morning. The answer is that God was pointing us to the gospel. Earlier, I introduced you to my son, Ace. And I can't imagine ever being told by God, go sacrifice your son. It shakes me to my core to even think what must have been going on in the heart and mind of Abraham when God commanded him to do this. But ultimately, God stopped that sacrifice. God stopped Abraham before he plunged the knife. But there was another son. And this son was also loved by his father, and this son was not spared. This historical event of Abraham taking Isaac up onto Moriah, it was never meant to remain in its own place. It was one of the clearest foreshadowings of the death of Christ in the whole Old Testament. What I'm going to do for the next few minutes is to walk through this part of Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to make a little bit of a connection for you to our Savior. I'm going to do this starting in verse 7. Please follow along, as this is the most significant part of what I will say this morning. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide the lamb. Himself for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. Even before the time of Moses, it was common for an animal sacrifice to be made to the Lord. And it was common that that sacrifice would be a lamb, a pure, a spotless, a perfect lamb without any blemish. And Isaac knows this and asks, where is it? Dad, where is it? 
And I imagine his father looking up the hill and looking to that place, staring at the, the very place where he is going to build an altar and saying, God will provide for himself a lamb. Now jump down to verse 13. It says, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Please notice, God did not provide a lamb that day. Abraham sacrificed not a lamb, but a ram instead. This is one of the clearest pictures that we have in the entire Old Testament of substitutionary atonement. There was a sacrifice that occurs instead of his son, in the place of his son, of his son, but notice that Abraham looked at that sacrifice and he understood this sacrifice is incomplete. It is not what God expected or wanted. It is not finished. That is why he named the place the Lord will provide. After he leaves, they get back to their homeland. What did you, where did you go? Sarah asks. I went to this place. It's the Lord will provide. He does not call it the Lord has provided. He's still looking forward to the fact that God is going to provide an actual sacrifice in that place. He's looking forward to the sacrifice which is to come. One that would later take place. And that is why Moses says, as he is writing these words in Genesis chapter 22, people still say, even to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The name of this place, he calls it, the Lord will provide. In Hebrew, this is two words. It's Yahweh Yirah. We kind of butcher that in English and we call it Jehovah Jireh. Sometimes we sing about that and we kind of uh, butcher the theology behind it a little bit. He says, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. This name of God is saying that God is going to do something specific. It's not talking about our temporal needs. There's a lot of scripture that talks about temporal needs. He's saying God is going to provide a sacrifice here in this place. It's the clear statement throughout the Old Testament that God is going to be the one that provides a sacrificial lamb to finish this sacrifice that Abraham didn't. God did provide a lamb. God did provide a lamb. Consider the first time you see Jesus in the narrative of John the Baptist, uh, of, of the book of John. If you read through the book of John, there's a prologue. And then right after the prologue, it starts with the story of John the Baptist. He's preaching repentance. He is baptizing people in the Jordan. And all of a sudden he looks up. And in John 1:29 he says this, behold, what? Behold, what? The lamb of God who does what? who takes away the sin of the world. He looks out and he says, behold the lamb of God. There is a lamb. God provided a lamb. And I believe this is exactly what God is talking about through the mouth of Jesus. When he says in John 8, 56 to the Pharisees, your father, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He rejoiced that he would see it. He rejoiced. And he said, the Lord will provide. And he saw it and he was glad. What does it mean that he saw Christ's day and was glad? It means that he looked forward and saw with the eyes of faith, without clarity, that God would send forth the lamb and it caused Abraham to rejoice. God will provide. And God did provide a lamb, a perfect, spotless, blameless lamb. He was pure in every way that we are not. He was without any sin and he was always righteous in everything that he did. His thoughts, his actions, his words, everything. He was the lamb that Abraham trusted God would provide. Look again with me at Genesis 22 and begin following along in verse 9. It says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, pause, where is this place? This is Moriah. Well, what's significant about that? It's just a small mountain range. These mountains are not even what we would even call mountains. They're just like these little hills with a plateau on top. 
typically you would go to a place like this and you would build an altar on the tallest place. That's what was common in all ancient forms of worship where they would worship on a mountain. And here he goes to the highest, probably goes to the highest possible peak. Years later, God would command Solomon to build a temple and he would tell him to build it at Moriah. And he doesn't go to the highest peak to build the temple. Do you know why? Because the highest peak is not big enough. It's not round enough. It's not capable of containing all of the, of the property needed for the temple. So he built it instead on a lower level, which we now call the temple mount. And he built this temple to the Lord where they would sacrifice lambs over and over and over. Thousands upon thousands of gallons of blood pouring down the side of Mount Moriah every single year as God had commanded. However, there are several small hills that are surrounding the Temple Mount that are much larger. They go above the city walls. And there is one that came to be known as Golgotha, or the place of the skull. And it is there that Jesus was taken to be crucified. So Jesus was killed absolutely no more than one mile away from where Isaac was to be sacrificed. And because it is God who showed Abraham the place, I am personally convinced that God led Abraham to the exact location where 2,000 years later, God would provide his own son as a sacrifice. This is why it says in verse 14, on the mountain of the Lord, what mountain? The mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Isaac carried the wood. He carried the wood up this mountain in the instrument of his own sacrifice. He carries it on his back up the side of that hill. And it is very likely that Jesus traversed the exact same path that Isaac traversed, carrying the instrument of his own sacrifice on his back. Look again at verse nine. It says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham was an old man at this point. He's 115 roughly years old. But notice the submission that Isaac shows to his father. As Abraham begins to prepare his son to be killed, Isaac does not run away. He's a teenager most likely. He could have. He could have escaped. As Abraham is wrapping the rope around Isaac's arms and legs, he doesn't even struggle. I can just see the picture of this old man struggling as he lifts the body of his teenage strong son onto the pile of stone and woods and Isaac staring with eyes wide open at his father, knowing that the only reason to be tied up and laid onto an altar was to be sacrificed. But Isaac submits to the father. Jesus, in this sense, is the greater Isaac. He knew what was coming at the cross. He knew that God the father was going to pour out his cup of wrath upon him. In the garden, Jesus prayed, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me but not my will, yours be done. And just as Jesus had always done, he submitted to the father. Now consider verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said once again, these words at your service, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. God told him to stop. But at the cross, God did not stop. And figuratively speaking, he plunged the knife into his own son. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Isaiah 53.10 He, God the Father, made him God the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Hebrews 9.24-26 says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, 
as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. For then he would have to be, he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. How? By the sacrifice of himself. So here in this picture of Hebrews, we see Jesus being the high priest and the sacrifice. Hallelujah. We have been saved. If you are in Christ, we have been saved by the sacrifice of the son, the greater son, the true Isaac, once for all, by his payment for sin. So why is it that God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac? Not as an end in and of itself. Did it grow Abraham's faith? Did he test him and grow him? Yes. Not ultimately just to receive worship, but but to point forward to Christ and what he would do on our behalf. I want to close out our time now just by speaking to those who don't know Jesus Christ in a saving way. Every religion in the world is going to teach you that you need to do something to reach God. You need to do something for God to accept you, for God to love you. You need to somehow sacrifice, whether it's a sacrifice of money or time or whatever it is that they'll tell you you need to do. There are some kind of standards that you must meet in order for God to love you. Please know that God demands perfection. What the Bible teaches us is that God demands you and I to be absolutely perfect. That is God's demand of you. He will not allow you into heaven if you have ever sinned even one time. And because of what the word teaches us, you are worthy of an eternity of punishment if you have ever done one thing that is anything substandard to God's law. That is the demand. And there is no amount of sacrifice of your time or your money or your efforts or your ceremony that could ever please God. So please know that God demands perfection and you and I have failed to meet that standard. But the gospel is that God provides what God demands. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 22. The gospel is that God demands you to be perfect. You can't do it. He tells you, you can't do it for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gospel is also that God provides salvation for us through his own perfect son, that he loved us. And so he sent his son to die in our place. What happens in Genesis chapter two is designed to point you and to point me to the reality of just how much God loves us. The picture of a father giving up his son is supposed to point you to God the Father loving us so much that he was even willing to give up his own son. That is why it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you don't know Jesus, I want to just encourage you before you go, talk to me, uh, talk to anyone that you've seen up here on stage. We want you to know Christ. As Steve was talking earlier, we want you to know how to, how to, if somebody says, why would God let you into heaven? We want you to know how to answer that question because we love you and because we want you to know Christ and we want you to love him. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I thank you for the summer that we've had here in the book of Genesis. Lord, I know for me, it has been deeply convicting and encouraging. Father, I pray for every person who is in this room that knows you, that they would be deeply stirred within themselves to love your word, to seek after you through your word, to worship you in their daily lives, to know you more clearly through your attributes. And Lord, I pray that they would be convicted by this gospel about how much you love them. Lord, let us love you and worship you based upon not our own merit or our own desires, but because of how much you loved us. Lord, let the gospel spur us forth in our walk with you. And God, I pray for those that don't know you. Lord, I don't know everyone's heart in this room, but Lord, you do. I pray that you would cause them by your grace to turn from their sin, their idolatry, their love of the world, and that they would turn to you, and that they would be convicted by your gospel, and that you would save them. God, I pray that you would give salvation, the gift of faith that you have given to many in this room. I pray you would give it to all who are here in our midst. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.